Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Happy New Year and a big bookie welcome to our first Book Choice show of 2022. We are still so grateful to have Exclusive Books on board as our sponsorship partner for the show as we go into the new year. We love books, they love books and sell books. It's a match made in heaven. Do you make book year resolutions? It's like a New Year's resolution, but of course it's about books. Perhaps you've decided you want to read more this year, or maybe you want to read different kinds of books this year. Or maybe like me, you've set yourself a reading challenge for 2022. I try to set a reading challenge for myself every year. Usually it's 52 books. I aim to read about one book a week. Some weeks I find I can read more, and some weeks when my head's on fire I can barely read the back of a cereal box, so somehow it seems to even out across the whole year. And some years I manage my book challenge easily, some years I don't quite make it, and then I find myself in December rooting around for as many short books as I can find to try and catch up and meet my target before New Year's. Last year, 2021, I had a very slow start, but I ended up having a great reading year. I got to 58 books in the year, with thanks in part to this show, Perks of the Job, I guess. There are always lots of books around and plenty of great recommendations, as you know. And I suppose lockdown also helped. So what's your book year resolution this year? Whether you're hoping to read five books or 55 books, coming up in today's show, we have a pile of great suggestions of books that you might like to consider. Starting with Beryl Eichenberger telling us about Douglas Kennedy's latest, Afraid of the Light. Interestingly, this was one of the 58 books that I read last year. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you thought of it, Beryl. Douglas Kennedy's skill lies in taking social issues, often perceived as just news headlines when they don't touch us personally, and catapulting them into the forefront. His novels are for the thinking person, challenging our own beliefs. It is the novelist's skill to engage us, to make us question, provoke, and perhaps react, something Kennedy does extremely well. In Afraid of the Light, from a Plato quote, he uses the vehicle, no pun intended, of the Uber driver who unwittingly gets involved in the issues of abortion activism, gender-based violence, and a challenged faith. The most seemingly mundane interaction can lead us into a dangerous reality where one has to finally face who we really are. When morality is thrown out in favor of personal agendas, it's not a pretty picture. Spare a thought for the Uber driver. Imagine the number of rides he has to take to keep his head above water, the abuse he may have to take from his passengers, and all the time maintain a pleasantness that doesn't get him reported. Although only 11 years old, Uber is a household word and a service that many use. While it has come under its fair share of fire across the world, it has provided needed work for an improved economy. You don't work for Uber, nobody works for Uber, but you do drive for Uber, you might not be their actual employee, but you are their captive, so says on the cusp of 60, Brendan, when it is the only work around for the recently fired. Through his eyes, I learned a lot about how Uber works as Kennedy carefully sets the scene for the unfolding narrative. Los Angeles is Brendan's hometown. His Irish-American Catholic background has carved a mild family man staying in an empty marriage to the super-religious wife, Agnieszka, because that's what you do. He's close to his daughter, Clara, who runs a shelter for abused women. 
But he's that middle-of-the-road guy, his father called him Mr. Blah. Get the picture? His electrical engineering degree had bought him a reasonably comfortable living as a salesman in a respected company, until after nearly three decades, the firm downsized. Not much left for a man of his age with responsibilities than to become an Uber driver. His most exciting moment was in his 20s, when he took a job way out of L.A., where an altitude of 8,000 feet brings with it clean air and snow in May. There's an allegory here, the light of who he was then to the choked life he leads now. But family pressure brought him back to the polluted city where he did all the right things and life ambled along. At times I was sympathizing, at others frustrated with this rather weak man. But when Brendan picks up a ride for retired Professor Estelle and she asks to be dropped at an abortion clinic where she volunteers, he has no idea that the trajectory of his life is about to be changed forever. His core beliefs to be challenged. When the clinic is firebombed, he runs to help. And it is a stand that catapults him into the center of a storm, one that is vicious and dangerous, where fanatical pro-lifers are not about taking lives. As the tension mounts with his wife part of this pro-life activist group and his best friend, the politically and socially ambitious priest, Todor, driving the action, they will stop at nothing. Clara is caught up in the fray as the story escalates, frightening, suspenseful. It is all too real. It's a fast and furious ride with an almost staccato style which adds to the tension. Intelligent and emotive, the story exposes those in our society who use activism to breach ethics, faith, and morals in their greedy quest. Kennedy does a fine job with his cast of characters, and this is another winner. Afraid of the Light is by Douglas Kennedy and published by Hutchinson. And while we're talking about the latest fiction from global best-selling authors, Beverly Roosmiller joins us to review the latest release from our own Dion Mayer, The Dark Flood. This was first published in Afrikaans in 2020 as Donkadrif. I'm a huge Dion Mayer fan. He simply never disappoints. And after all, local is liquor. Never have I laughed so much through a crime thriller. The new Detective Benny Chrysal novel by Dion Mayer, The Dark Flood, was a great holiday read. Well, no surprises there. At the private launch in Franschhoek last month of this, his latest adventure, Dion Mayer, the tall raconteur, entertained us wonderfully with bits of background about this book and the life he and his equally tall wife have made for themselves in Stellenbosch. Mayer referred to that leafy university town where this latest book is set as Volvoville. Why, he asked, would a town full of billionaires and wine estate owners insist on driving the most boring car in the world? He set this incendiary question in the often complacent stellies, revealing the sordid side, allegedly, of their creamy, shiny lives and their need for greed. There's a complicated plot which runs throughout the book at two levels. Two men are missing. One, Callie de Bruyne, is an obscure disadvantaged student at the university with a bit of a shady gift. And on the other, Jasper Bonstra is a vastly rich and corrupt businessman who has done the dirty on his investors and is trying to schlenter out of the pit he's dug himself into by sending one of his unlisted wine estates on the sly. Enter the naive and slightly annoying character of Sandra Steenbach, an attractive estate agent with chirpy twins and the most boring husband in the world who is trying unsuccessfully to write the great South African novel. 
She's the breadwinner at a time when the market in Stellenbosch has bottomed out because of Bolstra's hijinks and low manoeuvres, which means that his investors have had to dump their high-end homes onto the market all at once. Sandra is hugely in debt when she receives an improbable call from Bonstra, asking if she'd like to sell a wine farm off the books. Well, yes, the commission would be huge and solve all her problems, leaving her dull husband none the wiser. What could possibly go wrong? Meanwhile, Benny Chrysel and his partner, Vaughan Cupido, are in the doing as usual, despite their crime-solving skills. They've been threatened with expulsion to Langsburg, the ultimate career killer, and ha- contemplating having to break this awful news to their respective love interests when they are suddenly seconded to Stellenbosch in order to track down the two missing men. Volvovol, here they come. Cupido is struggling with a weight issue and spends much of his time fretting about calorie contents and the various levels of skinniness in everyone he sees while Benny sinks his strong and silent teeth into doggedly pursuing what he knows in his veteran bones is a deeply suspicious scene that everyone seems just too keen to have swept under the carpet. Having unpacked the novel thus far, I have to admit that although the plot thunders along at a cracking pace, it was somewhat beside the point to me. What kept me glued was the hilariously funny carps tall, the wisecracks, the ironic and dry asides, the extremely vivid characterizations, and the sharp observation of a wonderful, deeply flawed new South Africa. It rocked. It remains to be seen just how thrilled Stellenbosch is with this new novel. After that, maybe there'll be a glut of Volvos on the market. Dion Mayer is either going to be fated or run out of town. Either way, it's a great read. The Dark Flood by Dion Mayer. The boat ride we would take The moonlight on the lake The way we danced and hummed our favorite song The things we began to fade 
song was The Things We Did Last Summer by The Four Preps. Bearing the next review in mind, though, perhaps it should rather be The Things We Read Last Summer by Anthony Freejohn, because he's our next reviewer and he's here to tell us about what he read last summer. A handful of Afrikaners have risen to the very top of the business world in South Africa in the past three decades. Some of them now dollar billionaires with vast global business interests. That's the blurb on the back cover of Fortunes, The Rise and Rise of Africana Tycoons by Ebby Domiser. We're taken back into a brief history of Africana businessmen, the start of their endeavours to compete with English-speaking businessmen, hence the beginnings of the Help Macar movement and the Bruderbond. There was a very strong tendency for many, not all, English-speaking businessmen to look down on the Afrikaans speakers. Fortunes picks up around three decades ago, and many familiar names appear. Johan Rupert, Christo Wieser, Whitey Besson, and, less familiar to the general public, G.T. Ferreira, Laurie Dippenar. Then there are those unknown to most of us, but no less important than the others mentioned, and certainly no less important to business and the economy. Here are just a few of the names of businesses well known to the general public. Pep Stores, Shoprite Checkers, Mnet, FNB, Discovery, Discem, Capitec, Outsurance, and many others. Accepted that Johann Rupert was given a wonderful start by his father, Anton Rupert, founder of the Rembrandt Group. But when he took control in 1988, he didn't just sit and enjoy his wealth. He consolidated and expanded the group's luxury goods interests under the umbrella of Richemont, whose market capitalization has grown in Swiss francs from 3.2 billion to 48 billion. The others started from far humbler beginnings with little or no money to begin with, just drive and determination. Certainly there were failures, none bigger than Marcus Joerster and Steinhoff. Marcus Joerster, he desperately wanted to impress with his ostentatious display of wealth, a Ponzi scheme of monumental proportions. A section of the book that in itself makes for fascinating reading. Oh, what a tangled web we weave, when first we practice to deceive. No, not Shakespeare's, I thought, but Sir Walter Scott, big surprise for me. Towards the end we come to the mega-farmers, names I was not familiar with. These Afrikaans-speaking farmers are a vital cog in keeping the country's food chain running smoothly, while their products are exported worldwide. 
they've also embraced the need to pass on their skills to black farmers, aware of their responsibility. What they all have in common is they're all highly educated, exceptionally hard-working, born with the gift of being entrepreneurial, able to keep their focus on their objectives, their attention to detail, prepared to take risks with their own money. And talking about money, millionaire, billionaire, amounts so beyond my comprehension. Yes, big bucks, but millions given to help others with bursaries, loans to start businesses, and more. Added together with the millions of jobs created by the businesses they have created. And yes, state capture and the infamous Guptas, the myth of white monopoly capital, all feature in this fascinating and revealing book. Understandably, there is overlapping of some accounts. Many of the people mentioned are linked one way or another. Here, the author addresses another myth, that of the Stellenbosch Mafia. Fortunes is not a difficult read, but the workings of takeovers, reverse takeovers, share swaps, different classes of shares, the complexity of setting up and concluding deals in the rarefied world of big business was above my head. So I skipped a number of pages, but this didn't detract from this informative and engrossing book. Entertaining, informative, and revealing. I recommend Fortunes, the Rise and Rise of Africana Tycoons by Ebby Domiser, published by Jonathan Ball. And that was Fortunes, the Rise and Rise of Africana Tycoons by Ebby Domiser. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, who are joining us next with a special guest review from Linda McCulloch. Linda is the manager at Exclusive Books in Cavendish Square. It's one of my favorite branches. Linda's going to be telling us about two books. The first is Simply Seasonal, and the second is Velvet Was the Night. Hello, Linda. I took Ilsa van der Marwe's new cookbook, Simply Seasonal, home with me over the weekend. did it with trepidation because I live with a chef, and, and that basically means that I spend a lot of time washing dishes at home, and I can't really cook, hence the trepidation. That said, I found her mutabal recipe exceptionally easy to follow and the end product was delicious and went remarkably well with our braai bruki on Friday. I tried out her aubergine and tomato with ricotta bake for dinner last night and that was also easy and delicious and the basil at the end added such an amazing lift and freshness to the whole taste. It, it really, really was good. Simply Seasonal is a beautiful cookbook, just the same as Ilse's first book, Cape Mediterranean, is. What more can you ask from a cookbook that it's gorgeous and that somebody who can't cook can actually make a recipes work? And I don't really read much crime fiction, but I thoroughly enjoyed Velvet Was a Night by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. I love a novel that has quirky characters and I love fiction that has something to teach me, and it turned out that Velvet Was a Night had spades of both. You meet Mate, who's 30, going on 50. She hates the way she looks. She hates most of her clothes. She has a poorly paying, exploitative, secretarial job. Her mother seems to criticize every aspect of her life all the time. 
and she regards herself as an on-the-shelf lost cause spinster, and so she escapes into a fantasy world of romance comics. While she reads her comics, she listens to music by the crooners of old, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Elvis. There's a point where she's listening to Arthur Prysock sing Blue Velvet, and I actually had to stop reading and listen to it too. Besides her books and her albums, her only companion is a parakeet. She does have a pet-sitting side gig with a twist because, a little like a serial killer would, she steals souvenirs from each of her pet-sitting jobs. It's as a pet-sitter that she meets Leonora, an art student from a wealthy family who needs Mate to take care of her cat while she's away. Except Leonora doesn't return home on the day she said she would, or on the day after that, or the day after that too. Mate sets out to look for Leonora, mostly because she really, really needs the money that Leonora promised to pay her. Enter Alvis, who works for the Hawks, a government-sponsored black ops group whose job it is to spy on, suppress and harass left-wing protesters and activists. Alvis is an enforcer who hates violence and he loves rock and roll. He got kicked out of school partly for having an undiagnosed dyslexia, but now he learns a word a day from the LaRousse Dictionary that he stole from a bookshop. Like Mate, he's a loner who loves to read and to listen to his music sung in English. And he's also looking for Leonora, although not for reasons to do with her cat, rather for the role of film she has, which may or may not have some seriously incriminating stuff on it. And this is where I learned a whole lot from this novel. It's set in Mexico in the 70s with its government roundups, tortures and assassinations. And I was totally blown away by how Morena Garcia makes this intricately plotted novel of Russian spies, dissident artists, corrupt government agencies and students battling the totalitarian state. So easy to read. It's because above all this wonderful and subversive Noah masterpiece is about these two flawed and sad people, Mate and Elvis, who really managed to burrow their way into your heart. Thanks for joining us, Linda.
That was Summertime from Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, sung by Kiri Te Kanawa. We have a super interesting interview lined up next. Philip Todras chatted to Dr. Imtia Suleiman about the expanded edition of Imtia Suleiman and the Gift of the Givers by Shafik Morton. Imtia Suleiman and the Gift of the Givers, A Mercy to All, is a book written by Shafik Morton. And I'm busy speaking to Shafik right now. And the first question, Shafik, is the knowledge that you have. I think we first have to tell us your position in the organization and the way you've worked with them to have given us this very in-depth, detailed account of the people and the man, particularly M.T.S. Suleiman, and the work that the Gift of the Givers are doing. Yeah, Philip, it's great to be with you on FMR. Just quickly, in terms of the book, I've been a journalist that's been covering the Gift of the Givers stories almost since day one. And I happen to have met Dr. Suleiman before, in fact, he created Gift of the Givers. And I can remember meeting this very energetic, very dynamic young medical doctor who was a member of an organization called the Islamic Medical Association. And I was covering one of their events. And from those days in the early 90s, I've been covering the Gift of the Givers story right up until this interview, in fact. Well, that's what I wanted you to tell us, because it's a very intimate and personal account, and that's what makes for such riveting reading. And some of the things that, you know, you might want to tell us, I mean, the first thing that I noted was, and I'm going to quote, Suleiman believes there are no borders to human need. He's also very modest to his staff, no matter what position you hold in the organization. He doesn't present himself as the boss. We both share the same vision that God smiles on those who benefit mankind. I think that ethos comes through so strongly in the way you've presented him and the incredible number of missions that you've been on. Yes, indeed. I mean, Dr. Suleiman himself, the reason I think why so many people warm to him is, number one, it's the nature of the work that he's doing, which is basically giving to humanity unconditionally, irrespective of whoever you might be. But it's also his, his nature. He's a very humble man. Privately, he, he doesn't say a lot. But it's the way that he treats people. I mean, he will talk to the president of a country in exactly the same way that he will talk to a nurse or a doctor in a ward, in exactly the same way that he talked to somebody working in his store, to somebody in the street. That's something that comes across. And, you know, one of the things I found difficulty in reading the book, it's not a book that you want to just read page by page. You want to get involved in each of the missions that he was involved in, have to try and assimilate all of that, and then move on to the next. But I think one of the things that I felt maybe we needed some more information of is the connections and the processes that have gone through to create the wherewithal to be able to do this. There's the jet coming from here and working with people at various levels that just doesn't happen. So maybe you just want to comment on the logistics and how this man manages to put that all together. How he manages to put it together is is basically via hard work. But I think when you work hard, you have to be wise with your time and you have to be wise with your energies. And I think Dr. Suleiman epitomizes that. He works very hard. I mean, the other day he was in Cape Town and six o'clock he had his first meeting for the day. And he only ended that night at at, at 10 o'clock. And then he had a phone call to make before he went to bed. So it's a busy day that he has. But he's very, very focused, and he seems to have an incredible memory to remember detail. So for him, the devil is not in the details because he remembers them. So it's, it's just plugging away day by day, being decent to people, 
recognizing where people need to be helped and being very, very clever and very strategic how you actually apply yourself when you go in to actually help people. But not in that in terms of the support system that he has also got in place, in terms of not only helping the people you are helping, but those who are doing the helping. No, absolutely. Look, I mean, he has very good staff around him. I mean, people who are prepared to put on the hard hours that he does. I mean, one of the characters in the book, Ali Sable, told me that uh, sometimes he spends as much as two weeks a month away from home. And that's only increased his respect for the sacrifices that Dr. Suleiman has made over the years. But, you know, when you talk to his staff and you get to know them over the years, you realize that they are just as dedicated as he is. They're bought into the vision. So they're prepared to put their shoulders to the wheel and to help him produce what he wants to do. Well, it's an extraordinary story, and I think it gets summed up right at the beginning. Imtaz uh, Suleiman and the Gift of the Givers have been the recipients of multiple awards in Africa and the rest of the world. These include nine honorary doctorate degrees, the International Global Citizen Award in 2016. Suleiman was named the Social Justice Champion at the 2021 Social Justice Summit at Stellenbosch University, South Africa. And it's also all about what South Africa is giving back to the world. So congratulations on an extraordinary, intimate and interesting book. We've been speaking to Shafiq Morton about MTS Suleiman and the gift of the givers, a mercy to all. And if you weren't convinced that this is a must-read book before, MTS Suleiman has recently been awarded Essay Person of the Year for 2021. In an article by Daily Maverick's Ufrida Ho, she says that the Twitterverse has nominated Suleiman for everything from the president of this country to a Nobel Peace Prize. Our next song is The Summer Knows, composed by Michelle Legrand and sung by the King's Singers here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. Thank you. 
We have a bit of a nature segment coming up next. Irina Boerter joins us as a guest reviewer to tell us about a book called Wildflowers of the Waterberg. When I got a message from Michelle Tarberton a few months ago that she and her husband Warwick have been part of a team who has just published a comprehensive field guide on the flowering plants in the Waterberg Biosphere Reserve in Limpopo province over the COVID lockdown period, memories came flooding back of a week-long guided tour the Tarbertons gave me and a friend of this bio-rich mountainous area in the late 1980s when I was the public relations manager of WESA, the Wildlife and Environment Society of Southern Africa. Hence, I awaited the field guide with great anticipation and excitement and was not disappointed. It certainly is one of the gifts of the COVID lockdown period, which has also affected this favorite tourism destination with a decline in tourists. Wildflowers of the Waterberg is a magnificently illustrated, practical and comprehensive field guide featuring 661 species of flowering plants occurring in this 1,500 square meter mountainous area in the southern part of the Waterberg Magisterial District in Limpopo. It is not the kind of field guide that you can just put in a leather cover with a leather straps to hook over your shoulder like a good birding field guide. For this one, you need a rucksack to carry it in, along with your lunch snacks, so that you can haul the hefty book out when you encounter a flowering plant and sit down on the nearest rock to consult it. The wildflowers of this biosphere reserve is strikingly illustrated by more than 2,000 photographs and over 100 drawings. Each species featured is illustrated by one or more photos of the whole plant as well as close-ups of the flowers. A brief description of the nature of the plant as well as of the flowering period is also given, as well as the type of area where it is likely to be found. Eight endemic species are featured that occur exclusively in the area or are rare elsewhere, including Agapantha codii, which appears on the cover of the book. The whole idea was not to overload people with botanical information, but to aid identification and appreciation and to encourage tourism to the area. In addition to the wealth of flowering plants, this high-lying area of between 2,000 and 850 meters above sea level is home to a lot of game as well, including white rhino, elephant, lion, and wild dog packs. The authors opted to arrange the plants in family groupings. There are 96 families in all, arranged from the earliest to the most recently evolved species. At the back of the book, though, there is also a brief and handy color code guide with page references to the detailed species reference pages. Wildflowers of the Waterberg was written by famous conservationists Warwick and Michelle Tarboten, was compiled by Lynn Wadley, Linda Willemser, Kerry Baytop, Joseph Hammonds and Jonathan Swart, and they all have brief biographies at the back of the book. You can find this book online. Again, it's called Wildflowers of the Waterberg. We have another really interesting interview lined up. John Hanks chats to Dusanka Stojakovic, who is the publisher at David Phillips Publishers. They're going to be talking about the incredible lineup of books they're publishing right now. I always love hearing from publishers and getting a little insight into what goes on behind the scenes in publishing. You might not know that New Africa Books, incorporating David Phillips Publishers, is one of South Africa's most prestigious independent publishing houses. New Africa Books has published over 500 books for children and young adults, and it gives me great pleasure 
to welcome to the program Dusanka Stoyakovich to tell us about some of these titles and why this big commitment to children's books. The commitment started before my arrival at the company in 2013. A series had already been published, New African Stories, some 10 years prior to my arrival. Not all the languages were covered. The five main ones were, but not the other six. I saw an opportunity to extend the list, publish in in the languages that had been overlooked, and the rest is history. And it gives me great pleasure to say that there is a growing interest in our books and in books of South African content and in all the languages. Well, I must congratulate you on the titles that you produced and the quality of the publications. And what impressed me most is that you pick up a book that you've published, you look at it and you see it's got African illustrations, illustrating people living in Africa. It's written very often by African writers using African artists. And the beauty of that to me is that a child picking up a book for the first time can relate to the pictures and the stories. Now, why did you decide to push that as opposed to just churning out books in English? Did you realize that using local languages is the key to the future? Well, I couldn't speak English until I was five. My father was a Bosnian Serb, and he was determined that I speak Serbo-Kraut, which meant my mother, who is English, had to learn the language. It was tough going to school. All the books I saw were had Millie Molly Mandy or Amanda or Elizabeth. None of them looked like me. And I remember those days. So it, it's something that has driven me for many, many years to publish books where you recognize yourself. You know, not straight blonde hair with an Alice band. Well, I think that's very well put. I mean, just looking at some of the titles now I got in front of me, and you have people, it could be a scene taken from anywhere in Africa and children can relate to it. And then the multilingual approach that you take, and some of the pages you have English, Afrikaans, Isipedi, that people can read some words in English and they can go down to Isipedi or to Afrikaans. They can choose their language. And that, I think, is a very clever approach. The approach is an experimental one. There are so many languages in this country, and international tests have proven that in excess of 70% of children in this country cannot read in any language for meaning. They do not comprehend what they read. And I think it's possibly the standard of, of education, the lack of books, but also multilingualism is becoming more and more apparent. In a city like Johannesburg, there's so many languages spoken, and the languages are not purely French or purely Sisulu. It you have Mzanzital, which is a mixture of all the languages. So the reason we put four languages on a page is to give a child a taste of what it is like to read in a pure language, but also derive meaning from a passage in another language. Well, I think these books are really going to take off in a big way. And um, I'm looking at this in my capacity as chairman of something called the Lapalala Wilderness School. And I was up there recently and the staff showed me the appalling lack of ability to read in many of the secondary schools up there. I could not believe it. So we've started reading clubs and getting books out to children to encourage them 
to get up to speed in reading. And I think the titles you have here are absolutely ideal. I like this other one, How Many Frogs Can You See? Beautifully illustrated and then also scientifically accurate. Very impressed to see you got the Endangered Wildlife Trust to do the foreword to the book. Thank you, thank you. It's It's been a pleasure working with the artists, with the writers. I'm very excited to be doing these kinds of books because they are different. Well, I hope that people listening to this program will want to find out more. And I've got to ask you, where can they find the amazing range of titles, the languages available? What's the best way to get this information? We do have a website, www.newafricabooks.com. But some of these books are also available at exclusive books. In fact, Rain Beast is on their Christmas list, so there are lots of copies in stock. Or even Bargain Books has a selection. Failing which, www.newafricabooks.com. Good. Well, I think that's wonderful. I hope people will take note of that and log on. And if you would like to buy copies and donate them to Lapalala, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Thank you very much once again for coming on the program. Thank you very much, John. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me. All summer long we sang a song, then we strolled that golden sand. Two sweethearts. And the summer wind Like painted kites Those days and nights Went flying by The world was new Beneath the blue Umbrella sky Then softer than A piper man One day it called to you I Lost you to the summer wind The autumn wind and the winter wind They have come and gone But still the days, those lonely days Go on and on But guess who sighs his lullabies Through nights that never end my fickle friend, the summer wind
That was Summer Wind, sung by my favorite Michael Bublé, on Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. All the summary tracks for this show were hand-selected and compiled by Rick Everett and Dave Woods. In the next segment of the first show of 2021, Melvin Minar reviews two fascinating books about Irma Stern, which is perfectly timed as I see there's an Irma Stern exhibition happening now at the Norval Foundation in Cape Town, covering the Zanzibar years. So that's a must-see for Irma Stern fans, and then of course these are must-reads too. At ARC auctions, her paintings are ultra-lush honey to the nouveau and other rich who want to show off both their wealth and cultural sus. But to say that Irma Stern is a vividly colourful and not uneccentric artist of the past with her presence is far less of a cliché than the attraction of her art to even today's jaded post-postmodern eye. If we think we know what an Irma Stern looks like, the still lives of flowers, the enchanting portraits, even then we sometimes have to be reminded that there are backstories, and even, perhaps more important, social and political issues at play. Two new books bring some reality checks to the adoration that gets the wealthy and other speculators to fork out millions for her lush pictures. And while it should, because Stern was a far more interesting person than the colourful character that many visualise behind the painting easel. Sean O'Toole is one of our finest open-eyed, clear-headed art commentators, and with him tackling the realities of the myths around Irma Stern, she died in 1966, one was assured of a more honest approach to her art and life. And indeed his new book, called Irma Stern, African in Europe, European in Africa, charts an interesting artistic biography spiked with answered and unanswered questions. One of the more serious conundrums about Stern's art has lingered since grand apartheid days when she was also the darling of the then cultural regime. Her paintings of African people, she traveled by herself to continental outposts, ran contra to the ruling policies. At the same time, observers questioned the exotic nature of the often unnamed portraits. American academic Lanitra Berger has had a long-time interest in this very aspect of Stern's art, but she also brings a forceful feminist perspective. Her book, Irma Stern and the Racial Paradox of South African Modern Art, also spotlights the adventurous spirit of a forcefully talented woman, and it raises important philosophical questions about the dynamics that compelled her astonishing career and legacy. If, like me, You've had a weary cynical eye on the brahahal and prices fetched for stern, sometimes overwhelming, color-rich, gesture bold and in-your-face figuration. These two books bring a crisp view into play. In fact, it tickled me to ponder how this formidable personality would pack up a car and rally to an African neighbor and then spend weeks there painting the locals. How did she do it? And what urgent talent urged her to these explorations. In this sense, the books inspire a to relook at Stern's art, even the overwhelm-known paintings, of which so many are in public collections. And on this note, there is no better opportunity to do that relook than right now. A beautifully set-up exhibition of selected work by Stern is at the Norval Foundation in Sternberg focusing particularly on Stern's two pilgrimages to the outlandish and mysterious Zanzibar, the show has brought together artworks that illustrates, first of all, her mastery of fast line and daring use of color, 
but secondly, the restless inquisitiveness of the investigating of the other, the foreign, the not quite known, giving these figures a remarkable majesty. And of course, Capetonians have been blessed to be the custodians of her hands-on legacy in the beautiful Irma Stern Museum in Rosebank. So now is the time to visit, and now is a most suitable time too to have both Sean O'Toole and Lanita Berger's books on hand for these visits. I've recently read two novels by American author Lily King. King is the award-winning author of five novels. The first I read of hers was Euphoria. It's not a new book. Euphoria was named one of the 10 best books of 2014 by the New York Times Book Review. It was also included in Time's top 10 fiction books of 2014. After an unsure beginning, I ended up enjoying this book very much in the end. Euphoria is set between two world wars, and it's inspired by events in the life of a revolutionary real-life anthropologist, Margaret Mead. In the book, American anthropologist Nell Stone and her rough Australian scientist husband, Fenn, are posted in a jungle studying various tribes when they meet fellow British anthropologist Andrew Bankson. The insights into tribal life spanning different tribes, from the most violent and wild to the more serene, was really fascinating for me. The cultural differences between neighboring tribes couldn't be more different, and I was absorbed by how each tribe related differently to the roles of men and women in their cultures. When the three anthropologists meet, what follows is a passionate love triangle that creates the best work of each of their careers and simultaneously threatens their lives. After that, I plunged straight into Lily King's latest novel, Writers and Lovers, published in 2020. It's rare for me, I don't usually read an author back to back. I like to have a sorbet in between. On its release, Writers and Lovers was the New York Times Book Club Pick of the Month, and it landed at number 8 on the New York Times bestseller list. For me, it's a tight race with not much in it, but I think I marginally preferred Writers and Lovers to Euphoria. Writers and Lovers is set in 1997 Massachusetts, and it's about unpublished writer slash waitress Casey Peabody, blindsided by her mother's sudden death and wrecked by a recent love affair. She navigates debt, waitressing, trying to finish her novel and dating. As a writer myself, I love the insights into writing life. In one chapter, she decides not to date another writer who has taken three years to finish a single short story because she doesn't want his writer's block to rub off on her. In short, Lily King is an author you can pick up with confidence if you're looking for enjoyable, immersive commercial fiction. Last up on the show, a moving tribute to Jay Heal. My name's Vanessa Levenstein. Leslie Beek wrote the most beautiful words about her friend, the late Jay Heal. We don't have time to read them all, but I'm going to be reading part of her beautiful, beautiful tribute. Jay Heal, May He Travel Safely, a book in each hand, along the threads of the sky, 1937 to 2021. Jay was a friend of mine, a friend of my family, a friend of my friends. Perhaps most of all, for his entire life, he was a friend of books, any books, but particularly the ones written and illustrated for children. Children's books are not usually perceived as mighty things, but for Jay, they were portals to another world and other ways of being. As a teacher, a writer, and a passionate reading advocate, he knew the importance of a book in the mind of a child. He understood the comfort books can bring to a young person in times of difficulty, and he believed that books are a passport out of trouble of every kind. He not only knew these things to be true, he worked for this his whole life to make these ideals a reality for South African children. 
Libraries, he ran, were full of surprises, treasure hunts to put the right book in the hands of the right child at the right moment when they needed it most. I knew Jay as an adult, but how I envied those people who constantly approached him, whether he was in a theatre foyer or just passing them by. Mr. Heal, do you remember me? I was in your English class in grade four. You changed my life, thank you. He always did remember them. You were on that hike we did in the Fish River Canyon. You wrote that marvellous poem about marigolds. You were the boy who inspired me to call my anthology Green Toothpaste. It must have been fun. But, and this is a phrase all of them use when they see him or talk to him, he changed their lives. Those past pupils had children. Jay's legacy will last for a long, long time. His involvement with IBI, the International Board of Books for Young People, was something he would most like to be remembered for. While South Africa was excluded, he travelled at his own expense to 12 IBI World Congresses in places as diverse as Santiago and New Delhi. He was one of the founders of IBI South Africa. The Hans Christian Andersen Awards are for authors and illustrators. Jay was jury president for two awards, 2000 and 2002. He was also a member of the jury for the 1996 and 1998 awards. He wrote books too, of course, laboriously and somewhat amazingly, typing his way with one finger through millions of words, writing about, and above all, four children. In total, he published 63 books, 12 for children and 13 non-fiction, and the rest published on various aspects of travel and books. He was passionate about Shakespeare, directed, produced and performed in Shakespearean performances, trod the boards of Artscape stage in a magnificent production of Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, read widely on anything that interested him, savoured good wine and great food, was an avid cricket fan and friend of dogs everywhere. Jay had a life well lived. We will miss him, miss him every day. May he travel safely, a book in each hand, along the threads of the sky. That quote was from Dr. Megan, Biselli, anthropologist and friend. And I've been reading some of the beautiful words that Leslie Beek wrote. Leslie is a writer of books for young people and a friend of Jay's. Rest in peace, Jay. And that's a wrap for our January show. Huge thanks to all our reviewers and to Mwandi and Ewan, as always, for helping pull this beautiful show together every month with such care and enthusiasm. And of course, a big hug for our friends and sponsors at Exclusive Books. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and this is Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. And as we play out, we end hoping you will enjoy Those Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer by Nat King Cole. Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer Those days of soda and pretzels and beer Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer You'll wish that summer could always be Tell a girl and fella about a driving Or some romantic movie scene Why from the moment that those lovers start arriving 
You'll see more kissing in the cars and on the screen. Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. Those days of soda and pretzels and beer. Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. You'll wish that summer could always be here. You'll wish that summer could always be here. You'll wish that summer could always be here. Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people.